Hey, we're in our series here on the Unstoppable Church. We're finishing up the book of Acts. And I got to ask you a question this morning. How many of you from time to time may, just may occasionally get defensive when you're in a discussion with someone? We'll leave it purposely wide open here. Anybody besides myself? All right. So the thing is, all of us have to deal with this whole idea of getting defensive about stuff. I thought about it. In life, it started when you were a kid, right? And you're trying to explain to your teacher where your homework went to, and you're just kind of making a defense. Or maybe um, it's uh, when you're getting a little older, explain to your parents, why is it that you didn't make it in time for curfew? I don't know if that ever happened to you. It gets a little more intense when the officer pulls you over and you're explaining that you really were not speeding. It's just a fig newton of his imagination, right? Or uh, as you get older, uh, then it's serious when you have to go to an IRS audit. Yeah. Uh, or maybe you're in grad school and you had to defend a thesis. But the one time every week I see people being defensive it's called the NBA. I haven't committed a foul. I have not committed that foul, and, and everybody can see it on the court. Now, that's a little tongue-in-cheek, but I know that when we are in those situations where we have to defend ourselves, and especially when you feel like you're being unjustly accused, then we want to be level-headed, right? You don't want to get too emotional. You want to, it's a balancing act, presenting your case and yet not getting defensive and it's a tightrope. And so what we find in this section in Acts chapter 25 uh, and going into chapter 26 is Paul is getting his day in court literally, uh, finally, and we're going to get some valuable principles on how to present your case when you're defending yourself in something with grace and diplomacy. And in fact, we'll answer this question how do we respond when we're unjustly accused? That's where we're headed this morning. Our title of our message is A Defense or Defensive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. As we look at your words, may you bring it to light to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. By the way, for those of you who don't have a Bible, we have a Bible in the, in the chair in front of you. Grab it, and if you don't know where Acts 25 is, it's on page 934, and we'll jump right in together. Let's look at our eight principles here. The first one comes from chapter 25, verses 13 to 22. Verse 13, now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they, when you heard the name Festus, we all agreed this is not, has nothing to do with the Adams family. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. So what we're seeing here in three repeats, there's going to be redundancy. This is the same restatement of what just happened last week in Acts 25, 1 through 12. And so what's happening here is the new governor, Festus, who replaced Felix, is telling Agrippa privately, this is what's going on. This is the problem I'm having. And Paul has been in this holding panner for two years. He's been under house arrest under Felix. Felix won't deal with the case. He's just postponing it. And so now a new governor is in town. That's Festus. And he's got to figure out what he's going to do. Now, the problem is I'm, I'm not going to read the next 
several verses here, except for verse 19, because this is what he's telling Agrippa privately. He's going to repeat it publicly in the section that we're getting to. But you can see in verse 19, it says, and they had certain points of dispute with them about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but when Paul asserts to be alive. So the whole essence of this argument is, I got nothing to charge this guy with. It's a Jewish religious matter. And here I've got to make a decision about what I'm going to do before I pass this on to the emperor of Rome, who by the way is Nero, not a big fan of Christians as we find out in history. And so we'll look at that in just a moment. Now, they're going to pass it on and Agrippa II, Agrippa II is the guy who's going to kind of hear this case, even though he has no jurisdiction over it. He's a friend of Festus. They're vacationing, quote unquote, together. But I thought you might want to know, like, who is this relationship to the other Herods that are mentioned in the Bible? Because there's a bunch of them. How many of you in your study of history have ever heard of the Herodian dynasty? Three of you in classical conversations. Thank you very much. You've had that. Now, let me just give you a, uh, the backdrop. The great-grandfather of this guy is Herod the Great. You've heard that name before because in Matthew 2, he's the guy who does what to all the kids in Bethlehem? Yeah, kills all the kids because he, he's worried about who's going to take over. All right? Then there's Herod Aristobulus. That's his grandfather. All right? Then there's Herod Antipas. He's the great-uncle who be, you know, gets John the Baptist beheaded. So that's a different Herod. All right? And then there's Herod Agrippa, his dad, Herod Agrippa I. He's the guy who had James executed. Remember, we looked at that in Acts 12. And he had Peter in prison and would have him knocked off. But, you know, Peter is rescued, all right? So there's a lot of Herods there. Now, why does God give us so many dysfunctional guys by the name of Herod? I, I say this a little tongue-in-cheek. So that you feel better about your family, right? I mean, the Herods are messed up. You just look up Herod and you see the word dysfunctional killers, all right? They are maniacs. Herod the Great, the great-grandfather, he knocks people off because he's so insecure. You think you have an insecurity problem? I'm pretty sure you haven't had anybody knocked off, right? And so that's why they're, and it's so confusing because which Herod are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the great-grandson of Herod the Great. So first principle, through all that, Paul's been waiting. We must wait on God's timing. We must wait on God's timing. Paul's been putting his time in. Second principle comes from chapter 25, verses 22 to 24. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see the man about whom the whole Jewish people, bit of an overstatement, petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. So he's now going to tell Agrippa publicly what he just repeated privately the day before, and now he has several thousand people there, the military tribunes. There are five commanders. They each command a thousand people. There could have been 5,000 people listening in to this informal hearing. Now, we know that Festus replaced Felix, and he's He's inherited this problem because Felix just didn't want to deal with it. By the way, sidebar has nothing to do with this. If you've ever had a boss who never wanted to deal something and now you're the new boss and you inherit his problems, not a fun feeling, is it? So any of you in, in leadership and management. And so that's what Fest is going, why didn't he deal with this guy? Now I inherit it. So Agrippa and the second and Bernice 
are the two that are kind of informal, just helping Festus figure this out. Now, who are these two? I mentioned uh, Agrippa's uh, ancestry, but who is Bernice? Well, ironically, Bernice is the younger sister to Agrippa II. And this poor girl, she got married off when she was 13 to one of her uncles. She just had a messed up life, poor lady. But now she's living with her brother, and, and because there's kids in the audience, I'm just going to leave it at that. They weren't living as brother and sister. You can figure it out. Agrippa II, by the way, when he comes to the throne, he's only 17 years old. That's an awful lot of responsibility for a young man who's got to, you know, figure out life and rule a country and, and be a governor, all right? And so it says they come in with pomp and circumstance. Now, here's something you should know about this Herod Agrippa II. He was probably, of all the Herods, most sympathetic to the Jews. And you know, the Herods come from the, they, they are Jewish by descent, right? Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Isaac had two kids, Jacob and Esau. So the Herods come from that line of Esau. So they're kind of half Jewish. And so there's, they should be supporting their countrymen, but they've kind of sold out to Rome. But of all the Herods, he's the one the most sympathetic. And you'll see how that comes out in Paul's argument to him in a moment. So it comes with great pomp. That's where we get our, our English word, uh, fanta uh, fantasy, it's called, fan the Greek word is fantasia, very ostentatious, it's the ultimate red carpet experience, and Festus is putting on the show for the crowd for these two to be ushered into this hearing. Principle number two, don't be intimidated by your accusers. These are big wigs, all the important people in the city are there to hear, and Paul gets his chance, and you're going to find out he's not so much defending himself. He's going to be sharing the gospel. Ultimately, and you're going to hear more of that next week when Pastor Scott picks it up. Now, thirdly, let's look at the third point from verses 25 to 27. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. As he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, especially before you King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Principle number three, make sure your behavior is above reproach. Make sure your behavior is above reproach. See, he had done nothing to deserve death. And Paul had said, I'm, I'm just going to appeal this to the emperor. Now, that's Nero, as we know. And the problem is this, Festus didn't know what's going on. We learned last week, he'd only been on the job a couple of days. So this is in the first month of his governorship, and he's got to send a report to Nero before he sends Paul off to him to, to adjudicate his situation. And if you don't have any charges to send him with, that's bad. It looks bad on you. It looks like, don't you know what you're doing? You've got to tell me what this guy's done wrong. You don't know what he's done wrong. It's some religious thing. Can you see how already Festus has barely been on the job, and he is like pop popping tums. He's got ulcers. He's like, oh, what am I going to do? Oh, maybe Agrippa knows what to do. He knows the Jews better than I do. Let's figure this thing out. And so that's what's going on. And think about it. Paul, by the way, Paul did have people killed in his life prior to Christ, but that's not what he's on trial for. He's on trial because he's proclaiming who? Jesus, right? So the bottom line, his life and lips post-salvation experience on the Damascus Road they're in sync. There's no question. He is sold out to Jesus Christ. But he's also so done with this whole Jewish law system. It's kind of like this 
this kangaroo court that's going on that his own countrymen had betrayed him. And Rome several times has saved his life from when he was almost getting ambushed. And he's tired of being in her house less. He's under this political footballs being tossed back and forth. And they can't bring charges. So he's going to appeal to the emperor Nero. Now, if you were an upstanding Roman citizen, since 509 BC, any Roman citizen could have appealed to Nero and so, or to the emperor at the time. And so that's what Paul's doing. And the ironic thing is if he would have just not brought that up, Festus would have, you know, dismissed the charge and he would have been a free man. But we know from God's sovereignty that Paul needed to end up in Jerusalem. So even in the midst of all this crazy legal business, Paul ends up where he's supposed to be. Point of, just a little side point here. Sometimes we wonder what in the world God is doing in our lives. And there's all these circumventing, circum, like, Lord, is this where I'm supposed to be? You will always end up in the place God intended you to be, even if it's a route you didn't think you should have gone on to get there. Paul wanted to get to, to Rome. He's going to get to Rome. By the way, in history, the only people who couldn't go to Nero or to the emperor were people who were, this, and I describe it, who were pirates or bandits or murderers, all right? Those three groups, and then you, you couldn't go to see the emperor. So this will be his fifth and final defense before he's shipped off to Rome. And we see that, quite frankly, he has to come to this point in his life that he realizes that God is in charge. His behavior is above reproach. Principle number four comes from chapter 26, verses one through three. And as we look at that, I'll give you the point and then I'll read the scripture. Build bridges, not walls to your accusers. If you're trying to make a defense, build bridges, not walls to your accusers. And in these next three verses, he's going to give three examples of how he does that. All right? Three examples. Let me read it to you. Verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. In other words, saddle up. This is not going to be short. Be patient with me. I got a lot to say. I've been holding this in for two years. Three things that he did in those three verses. First of all, he was direct, but he wasn't defensive. Be direct, but not defensive. It said he made his defense. Although, as you see, as he's talking, he's not defending himself. He's talking about his character and what God is doing in his life, especially you'll see that next week. Secondly, be complimentary without being condescending. Be complimentary without being con condescending. He says, I consider myself fortunate. He's not flattering him. That's the facts. And he is fortunate because Agrippa is the most uh, sensible one of all the Herods. Then thirdly, find common ground. He knew that Agrippa was well-versed in Jewish customs, and so that is the common ground. He'd been king in the northern Israel for like 12 years. And so of all the Neros, he was probably the most faithful, quasi-faithful to the Jewish religion. So again, be direct but not defensive. Be complimentary without being condescending and find common ground. But in all of this, Paul's got to make a defense. And there's a verse that I come to whenever we need to make a defense of something. Uh, people are asking you about your faith and maybe you don't know what to say. Have you ever been in that place where you're, someone's asking you a question and you're going, wow, 
uh, I don't know. And if you get defensive and go, oh, well, that's just, nah, that's just, and we start mumbling, that's no good. People have legitimate questions about Christianity. Here's what I do. I rely on this verse, Matthew 10, 19. Now, I've never been delivered over, but it says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Have you ever been talking to someone about the Lord and they ask you a question, you know, how to respond? You know, here's what I say, you know, that's a really good question. Let me get, let me think on that. Let me get back to you. Or more commonly, if it's one of you, I say, that's a really good question. You should go ask Pastor Scott. <laughs> and he'll say, thanks for that letter, John. No, I don't do that. All right? But it's easy for us to try to overthink it. Sometimes, if you've answered people who are, you know, as you're defending your faith, you wonder, where did I get that? That's, that's God, Holy Spirit, giving you the word to say. And sometimes you look back and go, oh, that was pretty good. I wonder where I got that. I have no idea. The Lord was with you as you shared with that person. Number five, verse four and five. Principle number five, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time. If they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Number five, let your reputation speak for itself. He grew up in Tarsus, that's a Roman city, but he moved to Jerusalem when he was a teenager, likely, with his parents. His dad's a Pharisee. So there are no secrets here. Uh, his life is an open book. In fact, he's, he knows that he's lived a devout, pharisaical life. And in fact, by all standards of evaluation, he is someone that they looked up to. And that's what made his defection to Christianity so painful for the religious leaders of the day. In fact, here's, here's Paul's biography uh, that he gives of himself uh, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. Look at it on the screen. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Whoo, mic drop. We're done here. I mean, that's pretty impressive, right? So they're attacking essentially one of their own. Let your reputation speak for itself. Number six, verse six. And seven, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. Principle number six, bring clarity to the real issues involved. Bring clarity to the real issues involved. See, Paul's just talking about the fulfillment that every God-fearing uh, Jewish person in that day was hoping for, and that was the Messiah, God's promises to Israel. And they needed a personal salvation, and they were looking for a political deliverer. And that's why they missed it, because Jesus didn't come to them to deliver them from Rome. He came to deliver them from their sin. And so he's only pointing out what every uh, upright Jewish person would have hope for, and that is that there is a Messiah. And so he's kind of pointing out the, the hypocrisy of their own 
uh, accusations. Plus he throws in the whole resurrection thing. And you know there was a, a divide among the religious leaders between the Pharisees who believed in an afterlife and the Sadducees who didn't believe in an afterlife. And so that would get them kind of quibbling with one another as well. Now, the problem is it's so hard to bring clarity to issues when you're in a discussion with someone without getting emotionally hooked, right? You, you raise your voice, you et cetera, et cetera. Now, in the broader context, it's about defending your faith. But I'm guessing some of you who are married could apply this about bringing clarity to an issue in a conversation, True confession, why is it every time I preach, I thought, this is a really safe passage. It's eight little principles. I'm going to make it through this week completely unscathed until a little breakfast conversation with my dear wife here on Thursday. And with her permission, I'm just repeating a part of it. But let's just say it went from a casual conversation to a more intense discussion to you can just fill in the blank and, and just imagine how it could have gone. But the issue was we had to bring clarity to the issue involved. Now, I don't know if this ever happens in your marriage, but we were on this topic to begin with. But by the end of it, when I'm all, ah, uh, we're on some other long lost rabbit trail. How do we get from there to here? Does that happen to anybody else but me? Could I, do I have an amen? Do I have a yes, pastor? That's happened to me. Am I the only one? I see smiles in the crowd. I see people elbowing people. I think we get the point. The problem is, I can never, and I think this is what's awesome about God's word, I can never preach it in a vacuum. I was gonna nail it. I've been preparing for this. I could deliver it with passion. And then God gave me an example of how, you know, Pastor Irwin, you think you got this thing wired, but you know, this message is for you. You get defensive. And I kind of had some time to talk to the Lord on Thursday because that's what makes it a long day when that happens at seven in the morning and you're preaching at six at night. That's 11 hours to marinate on. And by the way, we, here's one thing we've learned after 40 years. We don't let that stuff simmer for very long. Uh, we dealt with it that morning. I need to get to church, uh, and oh, this other thing, I have to be to uh, teach another Bible study at 10 a.m. that morning. And this happens about 7.30. So we just, we talked, we took care of it. But so often, we just push that stuff on the rock. You have a friend that you have a dispute with, and you get defensive, and someone loses their temper, and you don't make it right, and then it's the awkward, like the next time you see him situation. And all I'm saying here is these principles work. It works in the, in, the, in the context of how you talk to someone when you're discussing in the marketplace of ideas about faith and, and Jesus. It works in the, in the marketplace of marriage when you sometimes find that you're defensive and, and you gotta make things right. But no matter what you do, you gotta bring clarity to the real issues. Principle number seven comes from verse eight. Simple question, Paul asks, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Next principle, ask questions versus making accusations. Ask questions versus just making accusations. It's a simple question. He leaves his accusers with no answer. Think about the implications. If they say God can't raise someone from the dead, then what kind of God are they serving? If they say he can raise someone from the dead, then what's the big deal? 
he raised Jesus from the dead. The big deal is they don't believe that he raised Jesus from the dead, and they certainly don't believe that Jesus is God, and they certainly believe that if Jesus says he's God, that's blasphemy, and therein lies the accusations and the context. Here's what I find in relationships. When we ask clarifying questions, we get to the root of, your, of the person you're discussing with. In this case, it's his accusers, but it could be a friend, it could be a coworker, it could be your spouse. When you get to those clarifying questions, you get to the root of their assumptions. Now, I rarely ask you to write something down. You filled in seven blanks, eight blanks today, but I want you to write this phrase down. All miscommunication is a direct result of differing assumptions. Go back in your life when you've got cross-threaded with someone and there's been a miscommunication, and I can almost guarantee you, you gotta go back. There was an assumption that was made and you had the wrong assumption. You saw things from very different angles. For some of it's just the difference between male and female differences. My wife sees it one way, I see it a different way. But you gotta clarify those assumptions. Don't just accuse people of stuff. Principle number eight comes from the last three verses. Verse nine, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Ouch. Principle number eight, don't deny or cover up your past. Paul's not trying to hide the fact that he was formerly one of them fully immersed in this life of radical persecution of Jewish believers, all right? This is, this, this is not a cover-up. He, he was anti-Jesus, not just against anti-Jesus. And if God hadn't, in his sovereignty, met him on that road in Damascus and he was converted, who knows what life Paul would have lived. God rescued him from himself. By the way, God rescues us from ourselves too, to this day. He's seeking out those of, and maybe you're that person today, maybe you're that angry person like, oh, Christians are such hypocrites, or whatever your issue is with God, I'm, I'm betting that maybe somewhere in your past there's been a wound. There's been something that set you off, and now you're just tipping your toe in the pool of Christianity, and you've come to ABF, and you're wondering, are we going to deal with a bunch of hypocritical, judgmental Christians? No, let me tell you what you're going to deal with. A bunch of messed up sinners who need Jesus, and we're just trying to take it a day at a time, trying to figure it out just like you do, but here's the difference. God's grace reached down and grabbed us. It says in Psalms, out of the miry clay, he set our feet upon the rock. And I proclaim Jesus, not my sanctification, Jesus, his salvation, that I don't deserve, his unmerited favor. And that's what Paul is going to proclaim next week. Scott gets the good stuff next week, the conversion of all that happens. Right now, it sounds pretty bleak, right? He is anti-Jesus. He did five things to persecute the Jewish Christians, number one, he's convinced that what he's doing is right. By the way, when you are a zealot, you are always right, are you not? 
you are right. The rest of the world is wrong. They're a bunch of idiots. If they just get with the program, see my line of reasoning, you'd agree, right? He was convinced. Number two, he prosecuted them to the fullest extent legally. He's a bounty hunter. Now, he didn't get pay for it. And notice, the religious leaders didn't try to dissuade him from doing it, right? They're like, go for it, you know? You do our dirty work. He wasn't some rogue vigilante. Thirdly, he cast his vote. Literally, he was in full agreement. That word cast my vote means literally to throw my pebble. Throw my pebble? What's that about? It it was a a custom by the Sanhedrin, which was the 70 ruling leaders of the day and the religious system of the Jews, that would be a means of uh, indicating their vote on, on on a situation. Now, we don't know if Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. We can't prove it or disprove it. But we do know that he, he cast his vote with them, at least uh, emotionally, whether he was a part of that vote or not. Fourthly, he tried to trick Jewish believers into blaspheming. He tried to get them to deny their faith, and if they wouldn't deny their faith, they'd be killed. And then it says the worst part is he literally chased them all over the world. He was trying to bring them to justice. Now, you look at that, and, and, and I'm going to leave you like on a cliffhanger there like, wow, thanks, Pastor John, for being such a Debbie Downer. Like, Paul, that's, that's a real encouragement. Look, Paul's just a mess up. No, no, next week we get to the good stuff. But I can tell you, all of Paul's efforts, here's the conclusion today. Look at this point. Opposing Jesus, ultimately, is never going to work. Opposing Jesus, ultimately, is never going to work. Here's what I cling to. Look at Philippians 2. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. We're leaving you with a, not a very flattering picture of Paul But thank goodness the story doesn't end here. Next week, we'll see his conversion. But we've learned some stuff this morning. We've learned that all of us are going to be put in situations where we have to defend our faith. And in those situations, you've got to learn to present a defense without being defensive. So look back at your notes here for a moment. And I think Chad's going to be coming and playing here shortly. And I want you to think about those eight points. Which one of those are ones you struggle with as you apply God's word today? Which one of those do you need to work on? I know what I need to work on. I need to work on more than one of those points. I'll just leave it at that. But stay tuned because ultimately opposing Jesus never works. And wherever you find yourself today, we want you to be introduced to Jesus. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. And Lord, as we sit here today, I'm well aware of the fact there are people that might be in this audience that are kind of wounded maybe. Maybe there's been something that's happened and Christianity isn't their first choice. They're they're here, they're kind of checking it out, but they're not sure. They need a safe place to ask questions without being made to feel stupid. And they want to be able to be heard. And they want to have a dialogue. And so if you're that person today, maybe you're you're still figuring out where Christianity fits in your life, can I just tell you, this is a very safe place to introduce those questions. 
So I'm gonna ask you to look up at me if, if that's you. And I'd like to have that conversation with you sometime. All right? Let's talk. Let's visit the issues that keep you from embracing Jesus. But I'm guessing today that many more of you in this room have some friend that is far from Jesus and you don't know how to talk to him sometimes and you found yourself maybe defensive at times for the gospel and you don't want to be, but you have someone specific in mind that you wish in a winsome way could experience the gospel. If that's you, would you look at me and say, yeah, I got one of those friends. Anybody? Yeah, raise your hand. That way we, all, we got a bunch of them here. All of us have friends like that. So let's talk together how we can be more winsome. We got folks in the church who are really good at that. If you'd like to know more how to do that, talk to me after the service. And then finally, today, friends, isn't it great that grace is what saved Paul, not his acts of, of righteousness, all that bio from Philippians chapter three. None of that counted. In fact, he said all that was rubbish in spite of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So let's rejoice in what God's done in your life, not what you have to do in your life. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing here among us. Thank you that you set us free, that our anchors are let go, that you are the one who's ultimately the forgiver and the giver of life. In Jesus' name, amen.